Strategy and Insider, exploring future trends and their impacts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 21st episode of the Strategy and Insider podcast. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Thomas, and I'm the host of this podcast and a partner at Strategy and. I'm happy to continue our journey to explore the latest trends in healthcare and discuss them with leading experts from really a broad range of backgrounds, be it physicians, researchers, pharma companies, regulators, biotech, and many, many more. And for today's episode, I'll be joined by someone who actually combines quite a few of these backgrounds and works at the intersect of academia, corporate players, but also healthcare providers. So it goes without further ado that I'm very honored uh, that she actually agreed to come on the show and share her insights with us. So a very warm welcome to Sarah Lide, who is the Deputy CEO of Medican Village Innovation. Thank you so much, Thomas. It's a real pleasure to be here. Hey, thanks, Sarah. I know you're based out of Lund in southern Sweden and uh, actually managing the largest science park in Scandinavia, focusing on life science. And Medican Village was inaugurated in 2012 uh, by founder and entrepreneur Mats Paulsen. And by now, the science park employs 2,800 employees in 180 businesses and brings together companies academics, entrepreneurs, and many more in an ecosystem that aims actually to facilitate research, innovation, but also societal development. And Sarah herself studied accountancy and law at the Singapore Management University and completed her master's program in corporate and financial management at the University of Lund in Sweden. Sarah actually started her career in a leadership program at General Electric that enabled her to work in Singapore, in Malaysia, in Thailand, in Hong Kong and the US uh, before she eventually made a career change into the world of management consulting. And in fact, um, she was part of PwC Sweden for more than eight years and supported government, healthcare and life sciences clients in the area of digital health. And in 2019, she eventually left our firm and joined another cross-regional life science cluster in Denmark as their senior strategy and project manager. And now Sarah became the deputy CEO of Madigan Village Innovation back in October 2022, which in my opinion is very convenient as I expect her to still have this fresh perspective on a new job, which you will surely share with us in a few minutes. But before we get started, um, a big thank you for being my guest for today and for taking the time out of your busy schedule, Sarah. Of course, it's a real pleasure. Hey, your CV certainly reads very impressive. And, and in kind of a parallel universe, you could have easily ended up uh, being the host of this podcast instead of me, giving your time at PwC, your focus on digital health topics and the like. And as a former consultant and kind of a proud alumna of PwC, as you told me in preparing for this podcast, what are the fondest memories and biggest learnings of your time in consulting? And what made you want to pursue still a different career path after a few years with the firm? Mm, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I must say that being an, a management consultant was a really fantastic period of growth for me personally and professionally. I got a chance to meet different organizations of various shapes and sizes, different management teams from you know, a variety of different countries as well. And one thing I observed is that many of them also often share similar challenges. And I think that's the value that we as consultants can bring 
in you know bringing a solution from another client and applying it to a different client. Um, and when I think one of the most memorable assignments that I had looking back was when I got to consult for the government of Namibia okay. while they were defining their nation's vision for 2030. So I got a chance to visit the country and really engage and interact with top government leaders. The prime minister was there and CEOs of state-owned enterprises at a really strategic level. And that's something that has really stayed with me uh, for a long time. Great experience. And in terms of you know biggest learnings of my time in consulting, I, I personally think that everyone should be a consultant at least once in your life. Okay. Because I, it, you know, it really teaches you the value of asking and listening. And I think sometimes we have this picture that, you know, the consultant is the one with all the answers. But I actually believe that the best consultants are the ones who know how to ask the right questions. Because it's oftentimes the clients sitting on all the experience and industry know-how that are the experts in the field. But as experts, it's also really easy to miss the wood for the trees. And the best consultants, I think, are those that are able to help clients see the bigger picture by helping them to think and see their, their challenges and opportunities in a different way. And I really like this quote. I think it's from Einstein. And he said this, that, you know, if I had an hour to solve a problem and my life depended on it, I would use the first 55 minutes determining the proper question to ask. Mm. Because once I know the proper question, I could solve the problem in less than five minutes. So I, I suspect that Einstein was actually a consultant <laughs> in secret. Yeah. But I really, I really like that philosophy, really taking yeah. the time to reflect what is the real problem we're trying to solve here. And then it's only when we define it. And I think that's where consultants help to define what is the true challenge then we can find the right answer. And I'm sure you need that also in your day-to-day -day job yeah. by now. Yeah, we'll, we'll come to that in a second, I assume. But as you say, also reflection helps. I just mentioned that you have been kind of traveling the world before eventually then returning to Scandinavia somewhere in 2010. If you look back at all the different work environments and comparing them to the current location in Sweden, which place did actually leave the biggest mark on you personally, but also professionally? And, and, and why is that? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's, it's really great to be able to reflect on that journey. So as you mentioned earlier, Thomas, I was working in Malaysia, Hong Kong, Thailand, the US, but still most of my early career days were in Singapore. I come from Singapore. I'm a proud mm -hmm. Singaporean up to today. <laughs> and I, I would say that that has really also informed a lot of you know, my reflections on having worked in Sweden and really contrasting the two different uh, working environments that can be quite different. And I would say that in Singapore as a whole, we are generally good at execution in that we are passionate about finding good ideas, great examples. And once we find them, we're able to adapt and implement them really efficiently as well as with a high level of quality. And I, I want to you know, take an example of how Singapore handled the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. I went back to Singapore at the height of the pandemic, early 2021, for my brother's wedding. So I experienced firsthand the efficiency in the government's approach in managing travelers that were coming in from abroad. And you know, the government saw the need for quarantining inbound travelers, but they also anticipated the impact that travel restrictions would have on Singapore's hospitality industry, uh, which is really important for the nation. And so they created a system 
where inbound travelers would be sent to a hotel that signed up for the quarantine program mm-hmm. and the hotel would be given a subsidized cost and travelers would have to pay a subsidized cost to stay in these hotels. But this program, you know, helped the hotel survive through the mm-hmm. pandemic, expose Singaporean hospitality to foreign guests, but also ensured that quarantine guidelines were strictly upheld because hotels who signed onto the program need to make sure that they met certain work criteria. So if you bring it together, it was a really very interesting uh, solution for the period of time when things were moving really fast. And I think that's a really great example of Singapore's ability to move fast and, and implement things well. And I think it's a it's a reflection of how the country is more hierarchical in its approach that allows mm. for speedier decision-making. But then if we shift to Sweden, where I'm commonly based in, you know, one aspect that I had to get used to when I first moved here was the importance of dialogue in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if you've heard this, Thomas, but there is a joke that says that, you know, Swedes have a pre-meeting to discuss the upcoming meeting. And then after the main <laughs> meeting, they have another debriefing meeting to discuss the previous meeting. And I, you know, it, it could sound quite extreme, but I've come to realize that in Sweden, everyone uh, has a voice at the table, mm-hmm. which is really the opposite of the hierarchical approach. And while it means that it takes longer to arrive at the decision, it also creates a sense of ownership for all layers of the organization. And once a decision has been made, everyone tends to move in the same direction. Mm-hmm. And it also creates this very natural breeding ground for good ideas to surface no matter where they come from. Yeah. So I think the best place to be is where both perspectives meet, where you combine Singapore efficiency with the Swedish ability to have dialogue and encourage creativity and pick up ideas, I think that would be the really perfect match. This is also something that you surely will need um, in your day-to-day job again, because that importance of dialogue, it doesn't sound so different to what we are also in consulting are experiencing, right? It's all around stakeholder management, especially Mm. if there is not converging, but diverging interests of individuals in the first place. And it goes and comes the success with the dialogue that you transparently and openly can have to solve it. And if you don't, then um, the the meeting won't be a success. So I can very much relate to that. Um, Mm. At the same time, you need to keep it efficient because you keep otherwise talking and talking without Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and that brings me to um, probably another element that I know you are really passionate about, which is um, female leadership. And you mm. recently founded actually an initiative called Vilda yeah, um, that aims to help women in leadership to develop and strengthen their role, both uh, business, but also personality-wise, while yeah, developing a valuable network for the years to come. For you personally, um, after you traveling the world, after you seeing different corporates uh, working at the intersect to academics, hospitals and others. What does for you personally good leadership look like? Mm. I really like this question because I'm uh, really passionate about leadership. And Thomas, we could probably spend the rest of this podcast just (laughs) (laughs) reflecting on this topic. And I would love to hear your thoughts, uh, maybe in a separate occasion. But, you know, we, we often talk about the fact that we are living in a VUCA world, a world that is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And that is the new norm for us, regardless of whatever industry we come from. And that means that more than ever, I believe that we need leaders who can provide clarity in chaos. And as we touched a bit earlier, the ability to listen, 
to reflect and to, to provide this sense of clarity, cut through the noise and pinpoint what exactly are we trying to address. But at the same time, these leaders need to be humble enough to realize that being a good leader doesn't necessarily mean having all the right answers. In fact, I think it's impossible for any one person to have all the right answers. Yeah. But it's it's really about you know good leaders being able to guide organizations through situations that where oftentimes there is no right answer, is ambiguous. And that requires a lot of listening, observing, as we said, but also the courage in taking calculated risks, being able to move um, at some point and not be paralyzed with a clear sense of, you know, why are we doing this? Where do we want to go? And this part of taking huge risks also means trusting in your team. And, you know, we have a lot of um, hype and attention around artificial intelligence right now. And perhaps in the future, if we come back to this podcast 20 years later, we will be talking about leading and managing robots workers. I can see that. Mm. But for now, organizations are still in the end about people. And you cannot be a leader if no one is following you. Yeah. So there is a, a balance where you know the leader has to be the first to go into uncharted territory, break down barriers, set the direction, because that gives courage to the rest of the organization to follow. But also at the same time, these leaders need to encourage the organization from behind, ensuring that you know the people understand why we are headed in that direction, how they are an important part of that journey, and empower them to take steps and be leaders in their own domain of expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking about Vilda, and I'm really so glad that we get to start this network, which is meant for female life science CEOs in Sweden. And just recently, I had a, a network meeting together with 30 other female life science CEOs and board members. And one of the CEOs shared her thoughts about leadership, which really struck with me. Uh, she said, I believe in trust, in kindness, and in empathy. Mm. And I reflected a lot on that because, you know, sometimes we, we, we see a strong leader as someone that is charging ahead, breaking new ground. And that is what we need. We need courageous leaders. But we also need to see that to be kind also requires strength, where kindness is not the same as being a nice leader, in that being nice is about never making anyone unhappy, which is also impossible for anyone to do, let alone a leader, which needs to make tough decisions. But being kind is about acting for the other person's best, which means giving feedback, speaking truthfully about a situation, but doing so in a way that the person is able to receive and act on that feedback. And that kind of restraint and kindness requires strength. I would love to have a, you know, a more nuanced conversation about what does it mean to be a strong leader in that it's not just the one that is most out there and the most aggressive, but a strong leader can also be a kind leader to the team. And I mean, I, I totally buy into what you say. We could talk for hours on this and I think we're super aligned on this. Mm. Um, bottom line, what it means to me uh, and what we're also experiencing um, personally, but also seeing um, in in being amongst leaders is that leadership by now compared to years in the past got much more complex yeah? mm. um, because giving that feedback to people is not only you give your feedback as one example, 
in one way that you are used to give it, but you need to have the empathy to understand whom you're giving feedback mm. and which way you're giving it. Um, and that requires you to to consider and think ahead and, and observing someone uh, in the first place uh, to then being able to to guide and to um, yeah to encourage and, and the alike. So finding those trigger points is is more and more mm. important, but also more and more difficult and complex. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thanks a lot, Sarah, for sharing those personal reflections from where you're coming from and who you are currently and, and uh, what you kind of subsumize under leadership. Using that as a segue, moving into where you're currently leading yeah, in the American mm. village located in Lund, as said before, which is kind of close to Malmö and not really chosen by coincidence. Yeah? The area is known for its uh, innovation potential, the science park that you are actually leading there combines reputable institutions such as the Lund University, the Skane University Hospital, the European Spallation Source, which is a multidisciplinary research facility that is actually currently building the world's biggest and most powerful neutron source, as I learned. Yeah. Mm. So let me start with a very basic and simple question. What actually and exactly is the task of Medican Village and how does it benefit from its location amidst several of the prominent ecosystem players, as mentioned before. Yeah, and I think to answer this question, I would like to bring us a few steps back to talk about how Medicon Village came to be. Um, and you might have heard, Thomas, about this company called AstraZeneca. It's a global biopharma mm -hmm. company based Absolutely. in Cambridge. Yeah, it's a, it's a big player in the field. And AstraZeneca has a number of, or had a number of R&D sites in Sweden, one of them which was based in Lund. And in 2010, it made the decision to move out of this Lund facility, which left 80,000 square kilometers of prime laboratory facilities vacant in Lund. <laughs> and so it created this big crisis for, for the city because it was a, a you know important employer, a key driver for life science. Mm -hmm. So a number of public and private stakeholders in the Lund ecosystem decided to come together and say, hey, what can we do about this? And this included Lund University that you mentioned, the city of Lund, and the regional authorities in southern Sweden. And very interestingly, Mats Polsen, he is the founder of a large construction and engineering company in Sweden called mm -hmm. PIAB. He decided to create a foundation called the Mats Polsen Foundation for Research, Innovation, and Societal Development. And it's this foundation who decided to start Medicon Village and who now owns Medicon Village. So Medicon Village was birthed out of crisis and it's now has taken over this old AstraZeneca research site. And when uh, Medicon Village was first founded, you know, there was the ambition or goal to say, if we can get at least, you know, as many AstraZeneca employees, a number of people, we, I think at this peak, 1,300 employees were working on site. So if we can get as many number of employees here, we would have succeeded. Mm -hmm. But as you mentioned, Thomas, we have, you know, smashed that goal. We have not just 1,300, but today we have 2,800 people working on site, more than double the peak of AstraZeneca's time. So we're really proud That's of that. Impressive. Yes, that, that, that is really, 
just to set the scene. <laughs> yeah. but, but no one could deny that in every crisis there is also a chance, right? Uh, so exactly. That. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, talk about proximity to the players. You know, in fact, our first tenants, when we started in 2012, our first tenants were actually 200 cancer researchers from Lund University. So that's how we started. Very strong mm -hmm. foundation of research. And, you know, right now we have many other companies working on site. A number of these companies were actually started by former AstraZeneca employees as well. Mm. Um, so the, the science part is founded on the basis of partnership and collaboration. And I, you talk about the, what's the task of Medicon Village. Well, our vision is to be the natural place that facilitates world-class research, innovation, and societal development to contribute to people's health and better lives. So that is our mission statement. And very concretely, we do this by, of course, providing physical space and mm -hmm. unique lab facilities that researchers, life science companies can access and conduct uh, research and innovation on site. Speaking of which, we have a really large number of life science SMEs on site. Mm -hmm. And what we like to say is that we provide small companies with the advantage of a big company by providing them with access to shared infrastructure, but also connecting them to relevant competencies that they need throughout their value chain, all existing in one place. So when we look at the ecosystem, we try to make sure that all parts of the value chain from idea to market is captured by the profile of tenants that we have on site. I was just uh, wondering with regard to that infrastructure that you're providing, mm. I understood it's kind of physical infrastructure in the 80,000 square meter park, so to say, right? Yep. Does it also include additional infrastructure, non-physical kind of cloud infrastructure, data sharing infrastructure, is that also in, mm. in parts happening amongst selected of your companies and, and academic researchers there? Where does it start? Where does it stop? Yeah, you know, I think that's a great question. I mean, right now, the focus has been on the physical space, the physical facilities. So more, mm -hmm. you know, labs where you, you work with molecules and so on. But the cloud and data question, I think, is extremely relevant. In fact, I was very recently involved in a management meeting where we were talking about this and in order for we, we we talk about life science being very much impacted by the new technologies digitalization and of course artificial intelligence and for yeah. for us to be able to respond we need new kinds of abilities to handle the huge amount of big data coming out of uh, the healthcare system and using them to create new solutions and so this is something we don't have yet on site but we are looking at to see how can we combine the more traditional laboratory facilities with the microscopes and the, the equipment with these yeah. other kinds of facilities that you might expect from a, a tech park, perhaps, yeah. on an IT park. But still, we need to marry them because a lot of the future solutions are going to come in the intersections between multiple sectors. We already see this life science IT or life science and food or life science and mobility even. And so we need to respond as well with that kind of supporting infrastructure to let these new innovations thrive. So short answer, not yet, but looking into it. And probably also another two, three hours worth of discussion and exchanging yes. and experiences there. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah absolutely. Not the aftermath. And um, you've grown humongously, right? Uh, listening to you also, the numbers that were achieved by now, doubling what Astra at the time had. Mm. How do you choose new additions uh, in terms of biotech or pharma, but also researchers, startups and the like for the science park? How does it actually work? Do they need to apply yeah. 
if so, what, what makes actually uh, an exciting new member that you're adding to the science park? Because from a physical infrastructure, of course, you have limited space at some point, right? So mm. you need to at some point select. How does it work? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, right now, looking at where we are today, we we are in a nice position of having ninety five percent occupancy rate. So we we actually mm-hmm. are at full capacity, and we have a waiting list, and we get continuous requests um, to either have a physical space on site, but also you know have Medicon Village as an entry point into Scandinavia by say, having a virtual membership. So we're trying to change the way that we run a science park, not just looking at a physical space with a desk, but also seeing, hey, can we provide this entry point for companies that are based overseas, do not want to be tied down to a fixed desk in a physical location, but still want the flexibility of being able to fly in and take advantage of our meeting rooms, uh, meeting spaces, you know, contact points with the companies on site. So that's that's something that we're really looking into uh, because we, th- we really think that's going to be important given the industry is so global as well. So we need to be internationally connected. Uh, but to your point about how we choose new companies that come and join us, being the science park, the largest science park is getting near focus on life science. We Life science has to be a key building block. So it can't be you know a company that comes from a completely unrelated industry. So it, they need to show the kind of value they add to the life science value chain, especially if they are service providers. Um, and I would say that today, out of our 180 organizations on site, mm-hmm. about 130 of them have a core life science focus. So mainly medtech, biotech, okay. also some CMOs, CROs. Um, so we we tend to look at what, what is the value that they're bringing, but we're mm-hmm. also not afraid of competition. So we don't say that if we have a member on site that's providing this service, we are not open to other companies providing a similar service. In fact, we believe it's really important to encourage multiple players providing similar services because competition is healthy. And I think it gives companies a a really good palette to choose from. So we kind of take multiple perspectives there. And we also try to identify what gaps do we see that we really would love to fill in. So what we're actively looking for right now is, for example, more investor presence at the site. Mm-hmm. We have some local investors and uh, national investors, but we would love more international uh, investor presence on site. So it's both a combination of understanding how could we provide an easy way for them to have a landing pad here, and that could be through a virtual membership instead of a physical space, or working with their local subsidiaries to, to find a solution. One other point I wanted to make is that in Lund, we have a very strong startup environment within life science. I mentioned that a lot of the companies on site are SMEs. And an interesting statistic that could be interesting to consider is between 2015 to 2020 alone, those five years, uh, 65 new life science companies were started in Lund. And to me, that's Mm -hmm. a really great number because Lund is not a humongous city, but we have a very strong academic tradition life science as a, a very key area. And so to see these research coming into companies is really exciting to me. And so you asked me what would be an exciting new member of the science park. I have a soft spot for startups. I think they bring uh-huh. in, yeah, I think they bring in such fresh perspectives. They're on the cutting edge of innovation. So to me, I would love to see even more startups coming into Medicon Village because I think they add a lot to the ecosystem here. Very interesting. And uh, 65 life science companies in, in five years um, isn't actually impressive, if you ask me. Yeah. It's more, more than 10 a year. Yeah, So it is impressive. But also leads me to the question, 
with kind of the, the research, the development happening in the science park, startups being built, mm. mingling with providers and other players, what's actually the most tangible outcome that you would call out that the American village or its kind of inhabitants have actually achieved already to, to contribute to that goal that you have been calling out earlier to give more people a healthier and better life? Mm. And I hope it's okay, Thomas, that I give two two examples. Oh, please do so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Um, you know, I've been speaking quite a lot about uh, the research environment and uh, and the companies, but one thing we're really proud of uh, that we have at Medicon Village is that we also have the entire health chain. So not just the value chain, but health chain from prevention to diagnostics to treatment and to care. Mm-hmm. And so an, a really good example of this is that we have clinic called Petrius Clinic that joined us in 2020 on site. It's a world-class hospital mm-hmm. focused on urology care, and it's fully equipped with the latest diagnostic imaging and surgical technologies, for example, the Da Vinci robotic surgery platform. Mm-hmm. And this clinic is, of course, very naturally providing a strong contribution to meeting you know, the challenge of cancer by offering both treatment but also pioneering research for various cancers. And if you take a step back, you know, you reflect on the science part. We have 180 companies. We have, you know, the, the researchers from Lund University. And we also have the clinic on site providing a, a very direct contribution to treating cancer. And I think that's a really nice way of saying how we are contributing to health from many different fronts, mm. discovering mm. new ideas but also bring them to market, but also seeing them meeting patients in the clinic. I believe that a lot of value that Medicon Village provides is the best conditions for life science companies to thrive. Okay. Because when life science companies thrive, it increases the opportunity for much research and innovation to meet patients. Mm-hmm. So there's so many good ideas coming out of research. And of course, they go into startups. But we need to see that these startups survive, they grow, they succeed, they bring their product to market and thereby give a chance for the innovation to meet the patient. So a great example of this is a company that we have on site called uh, Red Lead Discovery, which was actually founded by seven scientists formerly from AstraZeneca. Mm-hmm. So when AstraZeneca decided to leave, these seven scientists said, okay, we decide to stay and to start this company that we've been thinking of starting for a long time, but they didn't get the chance to, but now we do. And this company, Red Lead Discovery, is a drug discovery company that is helping many companies in developing new therapies. Uh, so more of a CRO, you could say, based on the founder's skill sets and experience from their time in AstraZeneca. Mm-hmm. And why I like this company is that it's really shown that startups can grow, succeed, become scale-ups. Because there's a challenge, I think, in Sweden, but I believe in many parts of Europe as well, where we talk about the value of death. We have many, many startups, but then they lack the financing or they lack the momentum or they lack the business models. They fall into the value of death and very few survive to actually thrive on their own. But in this case, Riglead is a great example of a company that has done well. It was awarded one of Sweden's fastest growing companies for four to five years in a row, this year was awarded the business prize by the city of Lund for the contribution okay. to sustainability as well. They have a big heart for that. And I think today they're one of the largest tenants that we have on site. And I, I like to lift up them as an example because when companies like Red Lead Discovery succeed and grow, it benefits the whole ecosystem. And that's what 
Medicon Village, we want to focus on providing the best conditions for more of these companies to thrive and thereby lift up the whole ecosystem to succeed. And I am a firm believer that the best innovation is happening at the intersect of great individual firms, companies, academics, hospitals that are contributing at their very best into something bigger. Mm. Um, so an ecosystem will thrive innovation and will be the basis for it in, in my perspective. Absolutely. Having said that, if you have clinicians, researchers, biotech startups, they all come with their own set of interests that they are kind of mm. aiming for. And I'm not saying that they can't have converging interests, but they have different interests in yeah. the first place. How do you see that? Can you reflect on that? And yeah. how do you bring that together in the science? That's a great question because that's really a hands-on <laughs> issue that we work with every single day. And I could give a very interesting example to that. Um, I was involved in a conference on probiotics, I think it was mm -hmm. uh, a while back. And I was speaking to a researcher that we invited to attend this conference and give a presentation on his research findings. But the conference itself is more geared towards companies meeting and sharing the products and, and solutions with one another. So it was his first real encounter with commercial conference, you could say. And so I caught up with him afterwards and I said, hey, how, how did you find the conference? Did you find it helpful to meet these different companies and have conversations? And he made this reflection, this researcher. He said, you know, I don't really understand these companies in that for me, <laughs> for me as a researcher, I am driven by the science. Yeah. I have a question that I'm curious about and then I see where it takes me. And depending on where the question takes me, it might or might not end up as something that can be used towards people and all that. But that's not the thing that drives me. Whereas when I come to these conferences, the conversation is a lot about what is the hottest thing in the market right now? What is the largest demand by consumers right now? And then the companies are looking to see those needs and then seeing how can their solutions or products meet what is being demanded in the market. And for the researcher, it felt like a, a very upside down way of mm -hmm. looking at it for him he took a lot of pride in the science I can imagine. and then i had to had the conversation with him to say hey it doesn't mean that the companies don't believe in the science but they want to make sure that they are actually feeling a real need mm -hmm. they're not developing a solution that doesn't end up you know finding a place for anyone yeah um, and I think it's that kind of conversation that we try to encourage on site where when we organize events or um, projects that we try to coordinate, we try to bring in these different perspectives to have what, at least one researcher, one company representative, one hospital representative, because the clinician's point of view is also, you know, they are concerned about what makes sense for the patient, what can ease a lot of the administration that they, they do in the hospitals in order to free up more time for patients, for example. Uh, and then bring in even the public authorities or the players who also need to see, hey, how are our ways of procuring new solutions into the healthcare system, do they make sense given that there are also a lot of new innovations that don't fit in the right kind of boxes when it comes to procuring um, innovations yeah. that could really help patients? And the fact, just bringing them in the room and identifying a common topic that everyone can agree is important and having them share how they would tackle it many times that is already an eye-opener for many of them because they, you know, all of us are so busy. We are focused on what we need to do here and now. And sometimes it's important to be able to take a step back 
be taken out of our context to meet with people who are very different from us, have a conversation as we talked about, and see, hey, actually the, the company isn't the enemy here or the researcher isn't you know, trying to make things difficult for me here. But everyone desires to make a contribution to society for better health, just that our contributions look different. So how can we listen, understand, and say, hey, okay, you have something to bring to the table. I have something to bring to the table. And this is how we could potentially work together going forward. So more of these dialogues, conversations, and yeah. ideally, I would also love to see that these conversations don't end as a conversation, but there is a follow-up to say, okay, what have we done with this dialogue? We've identified a very concrete challenge. Can we start somewhere? We don't need to save the world, but can we try one thing and build experiences in working across these silos? That I think leads to a lot more fruit later on. I absolutely can relate to that. And I have to say, in this case, Madigan Village and consulting is not so very different in this matter, at least. Yeah? Mm. It's about listening, translating and bridge building yeah, exactly. between different stakeholders and personalities. Yeah? So I, I very much can relate to that. I had also the pleasure to welcome, as you know, quite a few founders in this podcast. And mm. amongst uh, them, it was Dan Vedat from Yuma, uh, which is a very successful biotech startup from London uh, following the mission to diagnose diseases in the very early stages uh, through remote patient monitoring tools. And they're also quite active in the field of decentralized clinical trials, which mm. are executed through telemedicine and mobile or local healthcare providers and uh, aiming to improve trial participation, efficiency and development timelines. Yeah. Medical Village has also hosted an academic event with Yuma, I recently learned. But in your opinion, will there be only decentralized clinical trials at some point in the future because it's more convenient, more effective, mm. more efficient? Or yeah. are certain parts of trials that cannot be substituted with a digital first approach because a digital first approach could and would speed up, obviously, a, a mm. lot of things, but only if it's effective, it's worth it. What's yeah. your reflection on that. Absolutely. And I'm when I when I think about this question, I get the reminded of the conversation when uh, remote care visits or telemedicine first came out. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really sure about how it was in um, in Germany, but in Sweden, that conversation first broke through in 2015 when we had our first virtual doctor company come on the scene and they were really challenging thoughts on the delivery of care and reimbursement systems and so on. And when that conversation first started, it was very much of a, an either or, you know, will, will digital take over all physical visits and, and what is the concern about there? But when we reflect on that and we look back on those conversations, we now understand that it's not an either or approach, but digital, physical are uh, complementary. And we start to talk about here, you know, digital first, physical when necessary. And, you know, we can reflect when, when is physical necessary. And in the case of remote care visits, it was any time uh, something required a physical examination or the use of monitoring tools that required specialized skills to use. And, and that in itself evolves along with what technology can support. So for example, 20 years ago, we probably would not imagine being able to do electrocardiograms outside the clinic. But now we are seeing more and more of such solutions being able to be done at home with increasing levels of 
accuracy. And I think that it's going to be a similar journey with decentralized trials in that, you know, taking simple vital signs like height and weight mm-hmm. and so on. I, I believe that those can be done remotely and the general population has the ability to handle that. But when we talk about more complex or in-depth assessments like neurological exams, you know, lab and drug tests that you need to take that need to benefit from a clinical trial site. But I also see that that could be solved to some extent from uh, going to a mobile clinic or home visits, for example. So I think it's it's really about the complexity or simplicity of uh, what we are trying to measure as part of the clinical trial. And that will really depend on, you know, the endpoints of the clinical trial and what it's trying to address. But another conversation we've also been having in this, and I think it's about digitalization in general, is the digital maturity of trial participants. And mm-hmm. right now we talk a lot about it in context with remote care visits, but I think it also could be applied to decentralized clinical trials. In that here we talk about the digital divide and there is the sense that in closing one gap, say between healthcare demand and delivery, we should hopefully not be creating another inequality gap, for example, between those that can engage digitally and mm-hmm. those that can't. And so if we see remote care visits or remote monitoring as a complement rather than a replacement that can be provided with those who are comfortable with digital technologies, I mean, that creates the opportunity to open up resources who are less digitally inclined to receive in-person support. And I, I think a similar argument that can be made with decentralized clinical trials in that I'm really positive to that development, by the way. I do believe that decentralized clinical trials can really address some key challenges we have in clinical trials today, like patient recruitment, patient retention, getting the diverse patient pool that you need. And I see that we will probably see an increased uptake uh, of decentralized clinical trials in connection to the digital maturity of the general population towards technology. And so if it's provided as an option alongside a traditional clinical Mm -hmm. trial process, it definitely has the potential to reach more participants, while also not affecting diversity in terms of digital maturity, which may have some social economic uh, correlations as well. I like your reflection on that. Um, in this case, digital and remote uh, clinical trials are a supplement uh, to physical mm. um, ones um, rather than fully replacing them. And I like that reflection also on the digital inequality of medical research, because you can't just um, take for granted that everyone is capable, able, um, can afford uh, using digital channels and, and digital ways to take care of their health. Yeah? So mm. we, we need to think of that. And, and thanks for sharing this. And I mean, time flies by, to be honest. Yeah? I have, however, one final question for you, because you are at the intersect of a lot of stakeholders where innovation is happening. Innovation is also part of the company name that you're working for and with. In which areas of health and life science do you actually see most activity of new businesses? And what are some of the most promising ideas that you personally expect mm. to see soon on the market? Let's say in, I don't know, five to eight years. Yeah. And I really love that because, you know, we're trying to look into the future here. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> so let's, let's look back on this conversation in 10 years and see where we landed. Um, but I, I will I would love to give perhaps uh, three examples. And, you know, the first one may not be completely groundbreaking, but at the same time, I still think more work needs to be done. And that's within mm-hmm. oncology. I mean, that it's really still an area that needs addressing. And one area that we continue to see a lot of attention is precision 
oncology, mm-hmm. where we're able to match, um, you know, the right kind of treatment to the specific kind of cancer we're talking about, and therefore increase success of cancer treatment outcomes. And I wanted to mention one of our uh, success stories, actually. It's a company called Acrivon Therapeutics. It's a, it's a clinical stage biopharmaceutical company that is developing precision cancer medicines along with companion diagnostics um, mm-hmm. within ovarian, uterine, and bladder cancer. And it was a company that came out of our incubator here on site and was uh, founded by researchers from Lund and Copenhagen U- University. And uh, in November 2022, it got listed on the Nasdaq Stock Exchange with an IPO value of close to 100 million US dollars. Again, I'm talking about success stories, and this is uh, born and birthed in Lund, and so we're really proud of this company. And it just goes to show that precision medicine will continue to be an area that we see a lot of attention Uh and growth and funding going into. So I'm I'm also looking forward to see that development and also seeing Mm -hmm how reimbursement models will support such an approach because precision medicine has its own reimbursement models need to catch up to that area of uh, development as I see it. And probably also an idea to bring also a payer organization to your science park, right? Yes. <laughs> so Absolutely. they need to innovate reimbursement in the end. Absolutely. I really love that perspective. And then the second area I wanted to mention is digital health. And um, I, I really have a soft spot for digital health. That was my entry point into life science, actually. Mm-hmm. And there's also a very another interesting startup in, in Southern Street that could give a sense of the kind of solutions that might come out in a couple of years. Uh, this startup is called Voice Diagnostics. It started in uh, 2018 as a research collaboration at Lund University, where they had the goal of finding ways to detect recurrent cancer in the vocal cords using changes to the patient's voice. So they're hmm. using voice as a diagnostic tool. Wow. And since then, they have been fine-tuning their solution that uses AI-driven algorithms to detect voice changes. They're currently focused on you know, using that for voice therapy and training, but they're doing so in order to learn and collect data to support their longer-term goal of using the solution to diagnose other health problems like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, depression, PTSD, and so on, with the help of voice biomarkers. I think this is really exciting. I mean, imagine, you know, you are you are able to just use your voice, you speak, you you, you know, yeah. read a script, and then this solution tells you, okay, uh, you might have early signs of Parkinson's or you are showing some signs of depression. And that allows for more early intervention, but in a way that is perhaps more objective than some of the methods that are being used today. So I, I'm following their progress with a lot of interest. And I, I just want to mention one third area, and I, I mm-hmm. also a very personal interest of mine, and that is within the area of the microbiome. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much you know about the microbiome, Thomas, but uh, the microbiome is the bacteria, virus, or fungi that exist in or on the human body. And we normally talk about it in terms of gut bacteria and probiotics. Yep. Um, but we, you know, there are, of course, other kinds of microbiome, like oral microbiome, skin microbiome, and so on. And it's an area that has gotten quite a fair bit of interest in the scientific community in recent years, especially. And when you look at the science, we're starting to see some connections between the gut microbiome and obesity, depression, autoimmune diseases. We're seeing articles in The Economist and in The Guardian, and for example, talking about how you know microbiome really has the potential to address some of these um, areas. But going forward, what I think we might see in the next five, 10 years is 
the emergence of probiotics as the new pill. And probiotics with specific bacterial strains to Uh perhaps prevent or treat depression. And if you see that as an alternative to antidepressants, which has its own set of side effects, I think that could be really interesting using bacterial strains to treat depression, but also to perhaps understand how uh, various gut flora profiles could impact the effectiveness of different medicines, thus being uh, bringing personalized medicine uh, one step closer. So to say that when you analyze your gut bacteria profile, you can see, okay, if you take this medicine, you have a higher chance of it being more effective for you versus another patient that has a different gut profile. And there are some research that shows that there is that kind of relationship going on. So we might see that the microbiome can support more effective treatments uh, down the road and then have new solutions in that space. And the common pattern that I'm seeing uh, along the lines of the three examples that you very nicely shared is um, our world is going to be more precise and more personalized Mm. going forward, uh, be it oncology, um, be it voice diagnostics, which is super personalized, but also the microbiome is, is pinpointing towards that direction. And Sarah, really, really big thanks for taking the time. I very much enjoyed the dialogue and uh, it's easy to spot your passion that you brought to life <laughs> along the lines of the leadership reflections that you gave in, in a VUCA world and um, what a good leader needs to look like now, but also in years to come. How you shared concrete examples of achievements of the Madigan Village and, and how you enabled this personally, but also as a company. And also the promising outlook that you shared at the end, really, really helpful to understand your perspective i'll take you up on mm. that probably not in 10 years probably also in two three years already yeah to have another um, chat on this yeah um, to to do a, a pulse check and sense check but as said before really thanks uh, for taking the time yeah my pleasure so much it was a great conversation Thanks a lot for listening in today. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And we are already in the back preparing for our next episode that I'm personally very much looking forward to. And having said this, if there is any great personality that you would want to see as one of my next guests, please feel free to leave any comment um, on the platform of your choice or ping me on LinkedIn. Uh, Would very much like to engage on that. But until then... Stay safe and hear you very soon. Strategy and strategy made real.